My belief is we procrastinate not because we're lazy, but because we're lonely. Because if you go back to college, when did you clean up the fraternity or the dormitory that was a pigsty? You all did it together. All right. Welcome back to the Gravity Podcast. We are here today with Dr. Mark Goulston. Dr. Mark Goulston is the co-founder of Michelangelo Mindset. Founders, entrepreneurs, and Fortune 500 CEOs hire him when there is a critical or urgent problem they want to best deal with or an amazing opportunity they don't want to miss out on. He coaches them to do either similar to the way Michelangelo saw his masterpiece sculptures in blocks of marble and carved until he sets them free. He is also the author or co-author of nine books with his book, Just Listen, being translated into 28 languages and becoming the top book on listening in the world. He hosts the highly rated My Wake Up Call podcast and is a former UCLA professor of psychiatry and FBI and hostage negotiation trainer. Mark, thank you for joining me. I was really looking forward to this because I've checked out the podcast and I've checked out the quality of conversations that you have, and it gives me something to live up to. (laughs) Well, I am uh, very happy to have you here, and I I'm not worried at all about you living up to uh, our past episodes. I'm, I'm really excited to have a chance to hear your story and your journey. And anybody in the world of psychiatry, uh, for me, is always fascinating. Fascinating. I'm a kind of um, a closet. Wanted to be a, a psychologist. Never had the uh, kind of courage and 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 um, confidence to go that route with my career when I was younger, but I've loved the field. Yeah, I'm really excited to learn more about your path. Uh, It's interesting you say that because I'm not sure it was courage or confidence that led me down that, which Mm -hmm. really goes back to my past because I've accomplished a fair amount of things. If people Google me, they'll say, boy, he's done a lot. But I think my greatest personal, personal psychological, emotional accomplishment is I dropped out of medical school twice and finished. Hmm. I don't wow. know anyone. I don't know anyone who dropped out twice and finished. And I didn't drop out to see the world. I I had untreated depression. Hmm. So the first time I dropped out, I and what happened is I was highlighting books, hoping that I could hold on to the information, and I really couldn't. Mm-hmm. So the first leave of absence I took. I worked in blue collar jobs. One of my favorite was uh, I had a van and I would put up a liquor store and bar uh, items for a liquor distributing company. So I would speak to the bartenders in South Boston and I'd debate with them and say, you can have two Heineken windmills if you keep one up in your store for a month and you can keep the second one down in your basement because they all collect this stuff. If you go into the basement of a bar owner or liquor store owner, you're going to die from neon because they got all these things that they take from their stores. But I loved it. I loved it. And my mind calmed down to really a blue-collar blue level of conversation, interaction. I went back to medical school, and then it happened again. Mm. And my mind just wouldn't work. Mark, I want to just interrupt you for a second because I really want to go deep with you on that. And I'm tempted to do that right now. There's a lot of 
interest just um, in the subject that, that you've just touched on. I mean, there's a lot there around dropping out of college and letting your mind rest and depression. And I'd love to hear more about, you know, the second time and how you eventually made it through. Um, so we're going to come back to that because what I really want to do is give the listener the full experience that even led you to that point to begin with, um, including, you know, potentially um, maybe, you know, some of the threads that even had you in a depression, if, if there is a connection there. So can you start at the beginning for me? Just tell me a little bit about your childhood you know, your, your upbringing, your, your family dynamics, you know, where you're from, just paint the picture a little bit for the listener of those early years. Well, as long as you're holding my hand, my friend, I'm with you. <laughs> I grew up uh, in a suburb of Boston called Newton, Massachusetts. I had two older brothers and hardworking dad depression age dad and uh and i have a feeling that i was a creative but i think what he thought about is you're never going to make a living as a creative so whenever i wanted to go down creative paths he would he would basically talk me out of it and so it's not unusual uh, i'm a baby boomer when you're uh, a Jewish child from the suburbs, you either, and you go to college, it's not unusual to either go to law school or medical school. Seem, seemed to be a lot going in that way. And mm-hmm. so I chose to go to medical school. And I wasn't really that excited about it, except for the fact that I cared about other people. And so I think that's what drew me into medical school. I'll tell you an insight that I recently. Uh, uh, felt because I know many lawyers and my son is uh, in his second year of law school. And the difference between going to law school or medical school, I, I could be wrong on this, but I've spent some time thinking about it. I think I could relate to helplessness because there were many times when I felt helpless. And I think I wanted to give help to other people who were feeling helpless in their pain. I think people who go to law school might not not have felt helpless, but they might have felt powerless. So I'm going to go to a place where I have power. I didn't go to medical school to have power. I went to medical school to be helpful. But uh, I don't know if that lands. It would be an interesting Mm -hmm. study Mm -hmm. to see if some of the driving forces of lawyers is I'm not going to feel powerless. I'm going to go into some profession and I'm going to be powerful. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm certain. And, and you, you um, would know this technically that, you know, there's all kinds of little events, traumas or, or conditioning that happens at a very young age that can really set you on a, a path. If that's true about lawyers, I would imagine most of them are unconscious to it. No, absolutely. As well as uh, uh, doctors. And it was Mm -hmm. interesting when I did finally go to college and I went to UC Berkeley during the 60s. So we're Mm -hmm. talking uh, the hippie, the the peak of the hippie phenomena. And whenever I would 
moved towards a creative major. My father, who was, he worked at a company and he was the controller and he was the one who would hire and fire people. So the CEO, you know, was a people person, but my father was assigned kind of the, uh, the dirty work. And, and so my father would kind of grill me. And, and I'll never forget when I finally said, I think I'm going to be pre-med. He said, that's my boy. And I held on to a little bit of a grudge, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, my father died in 94, and I've let go of that. Uh, because uh, he didn't grill me when I said, I think I'm going to be pre-med. See, I, wouldn't, I didn't mind the grilling, but I wanted him to be an equal opportunity griller. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I was doing something, but I've forgiven him because I saw that there was a part of him that wanted me to have the autonomy of being a doctor or a lawyer that maybe he didn't have. Mm-hmm. And so I could see that part of the reason for his channeling me in that direction was really that he wanted the best for me. But still, you know, look, you got to remember, I was a child of the 60s. We had the, the Vietnam War protest, all these things. So I had kind of a, a chip on my shoulder. Mm-hmm. And then I go into medical school. And because my heart is not in it, and I, I'm also, I was also an idealist. I made it more difficult for myself than I needed to because I was an idealist. So, for instance, they had old exams up in the library because you know most of the professors don't change their exams they change a few questions but i felt it was wrong to look at old exams i felt that was cheating so i made it more difficult than myself because i i and and that follows my entire life where i wouldn't cut a corner if there was something that just didn't seem right about it Mm -hmm. Uh, and and so then what happened is i got depressed, dropped out of medical school, worked in a blue-collar job, came back, and then my depression came back. And then the second time I sought to drop out, I met with the, I think you'll like this story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I met with the head of the school. The dean of the school cares about money. And I don't even remember the meeting. And I was pretty low. And then I get a call from the dean of students who cares about students. And he says, Mark, you better get in here. I got a letter from the, uh, the dean of the school. And I think the dean of the school was worried that I might hurt myself. Uh, because when I met with the dean of students, I read the letter from the other dean. And it said, I met with Mr. Goulston. Uh, we talked about other careers and i'm advising the promotions committee that he be asked to withdraw and i said what does this mean and the dean of students said you've been kicked out Hmm. and uh, and i kind of caved over it was like a gunshot wound to the stomach and i know what that's like because i had a perforated colon that i almost died from about 12 years ago and i just kind of caved in and I felt something wet on my cheeks and I thought I was bleeding from my eyes. I mean, this gets a little bit weird. Mm -hmm. And I touch my cheekbones and it's tears. And so imagine the upbringing I came from. You're only worth what you can do in life. 
Mm-hmm. And at that point, I didn't feel like I could do much. And, and something to tee this up, because uh, this will be important when you understand the significance of what the Dean of Students said to me. During my first leave of absence, I wrote a poem that got published in a journal of geriatric psychiatry, and it was called Lament for the Old, because I, I just looked around and I say, boy, uh, we don't really treat old people that well. We're not patient. You know, we want to focus on people where you can get, give them more life. And the bottom stanza, uh, I'll just read from Lament for the Old, because one of the lines says that uh, I'm, I am now three times the age of when I wrote this. And the bottom stanza, which the, and the dean of students must have seen this. It, it says, I then took the time to get to know some of these marvelous people three times my age, which I'm now, who offered a wealth of experience that spanned hundreds of years. What was so obviously missing was someone to share the fullness of the past and to help relieve the loneliness of the future and maybe someone to give a damn when they died. So it's kind of ironic because I'm three times that age. So going back uh, to his telling me that they kicked me out in my cratering. Imagine hearing this. I don't know if you have ever had the feeling that people's love and approval is tied to your accomplishment, but it's not an unusual dynamic. And so he says to me, Mark, you didn't mess up, but you are messed up. Mm-hmm. Meaning I was passing everything. He said, but if you get uh, unmessed up, I think the school would be glad they gave you a second chance. So he's talking against the dean of the school. Mm-hmm. And I start to then cry from the compassion and the understanding. And then he says, and even if you don't get unmessed up, even if you don't become a doctor, even if you don't do anything with the rest of your life, I would be proud to know you. And I'm, my eyes are just pouring. Mm-hmm. And he said, because you have a streak of goodness in you that we don't grade in medical school, we should. And you have no idea how much the world needs that goodness. And you're not going to know it till you're 35. But you have to make it till you're 35. And then he said, look at me, because I was looking away and I was crying. He said, look at me. But you have to make it till you're 35. He points his finger at me and he says, and you deserve to be on this planet. And you're going to let me help you. If he had said to me, uh, if I can help you, give me a call, I would have gone back to my apartment. I'm not confident that I'd be here today. Mm-hmm. So he grabbed me by the nape of the neck. He stood up to the promotions committee that he was part of. And then I met with them. And I guess they saw something in me that he did. And they gave me a, a, a second leave of absence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but why... I just want to connect that to what I'm doing presently because uh, everything's come full circle. In the last year, I started a company called Michelangelo Mindset. And what Michelangelo Mindset stands for is teaching people to see the angel in the marble and set it free. That's what Mm -hmm. Michelangelo did. Mm -hmm. So I've created courses for uh, an accelerator of startups. 
And I teach them to think like Michelangelo. Inside your investors is someone who wants to give you money. Inside your customers and clients is someone who wants to buy from you. Inside talent you want to attract is that someone who wants to work for you. You have to see it clearly what they really, really want and set it free. Mm-hmm. But why it's come full circle, and I didn't realize this when I started Michelangelo Mindset, I was, the dean of students was Michelangelo, and I was the David in my future. Because what happened is I finished medical school. I went to UCLA, trained in psychiatry. One of my mentors was the pioneer in the study of suicide prevention. And for 25 years, I focused on suicide prevention and none of my patients died by suicide. And all I did was pay it forward. Mm, mm, mm. Really uh, fascinating. Let's back up because, you know, you've said a lot that's really uh, interesting to me and uh, appreciate you sharing that story. It's a very good one. And I hope that um, there's people listening that can also see themselves in uh, you and in your journey. And that's really the whole point of this podcast, you know, but no probably more important moment, you know, for, for, or learning if, if you're in fact somebody who's at that point in your life, um, whether it be on the verge of suicide or depression, to be able to uh, be told that somebody cared about you and believed in you, um, regardless of your accomplishments, and to hear that you were able to come through that and come out on the other side quite successfully and then give it back is really inspiring. I want to back up a little bit, though, and talk a little bit more about this piece, which I'm personally really fascinated with. Um, and it's not, you know, a coincidence, my own experience, um, like yours, you know, kind of funny, you know, in the kind of, you know, Jewish stereotypes, right? You know, um, I also had a father who was pretty clear about what he thought was best for me and not just for me, but like all men should do X. In my case, that was, you know, look a certain way and talk a certain way and act a certain way, you know, kind of high standards for, for being. And that, that certainly filtered into how you spent your time as a kid, athletics, you know, all the kind of, um, you know, stereotypical male roles, including as you, as I age, you know, what that meant in terms of studies and career, for sure. Um, and even if some of it wasn't said, it was kind of um, what you know I took on. Um, it was implied, I believe. And, and I think that you know, society, uh, and maybe today things have changed a little bit. Um, maybe in the 60s at Berkeley, you know, things were different. But stereotypically, traditionally, generally speaking, society tells us how we're supposed to be. Um, and, and maybe it's, you know, again, better in certain places. 
Um, you know, I live in Ohio and, and I often feel kind of the societal conditioning about how we're supposed to look and act and do and what's right. And um, I'm just curious, you know, to the extent that you can maybe elaborate a little bit on your memories of wanting to be this creative, you know, that, that to me, again, is another piece that I'm personally very fascinated and passionate about is that I believe, truly believe that we were all born to be creative and that the uh, definition of creativity has been limited to the fine arts, but that, you know, creation is, is what is inside of all of us at a very young age. And it is that parental societal conditioning that takes us uh, away from that and onto a different path. And so I'd like to better understand a little bit more about your experience as a kid, as somebody that had that desire to be creative and what it's been like for you to fight against that conditioning to find yourself into present day. Well, I'll share an anecdote that I don't often share only because I'm remembering it and you're creating the space. Uh, I've done a lot in my life. I've trained hostage negotiators. I uh, was part of the O.J. Simpson criminal trial. I was an advisor to the prosecution. I've spoken in Moscow, uh, been a headliner along with a Nobel Prize winner named Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. So, you know, I've, I've accomplished a lot. But I'm going to tell you the most powerful moment of my entire life. And the most powerful moment was when I was telling my father I was dropping out. And I remember I had to tell him because uh, there was a certain window in which you could get your tuition back. And I remember I met with him. And again, he was, everybody was kind of intimidated by him in his company, even the CEO, because he was the guy who had the nerve to fire people. And he, and he wasn't, I don't, I don't think he was brutal, but he was pretty direct, you know. Uh, and he just tell you, you know, why you're fired. And so he was like that as a dad. And I remember meeting with him, and, uh, and I'm sitting across from him, and he kind of looks at me like, what's this about? And I said, I'm leaving medical school. And he said, what, you flunk out? I said, no, I'm not flunking. He says, well, I don't get it. And, you know, and then I shared you know, that I was feeling down and whatever, and he didn't hear that, and that I was trying to hold on to information I couldn't. He still didn't get it. And there was a point at which he said, look, you're not flunking. We'll find a tutor. You know, it seems like a waste. And, uh, and I remember he, he came on so strong that I looked down and I remember him talking to me. And I don't remember the exact words, but I had this feeling if I go back, something bad's going to happen. And I've never been destructive to another person. And there was a point he's talking, and then he reaches a point where he said, so we're agreed you're not going to drop out. You're going to go back, you'll, you'll get a tutor and whatever. And so I don't know if you can imagine this, but try to. So here's the person who is, you know, in retrospect, I realized he wanted the best for us, but he was tough. And he could look at you with a kind of, at times, you know, if he didn't like something, he'd look at you with disgust. You know, you know, it's it's not an unusual dad. 
believe me, as a psychiatrist, there were many worse dads I'd come into uh, seeing patients. So I remember, I'm just thinking, I can't go back. I can't go back. And then I lifted my eyes up. And I looked into his eyes like I'm looking into yours. And I said, you don't seem to understand. I'm afraid. Very concise. I just stared at him. I mean, I held on to his eyes and the tears just came down my cheeks and I just stared him down. He didn't say anything because I was just looking into his eyes. And then he looked down, clenched his fists and said, do what you need to do. We'll, we'll try and support you. That was the most powerful moment in my life. But can you understand why? And so if you're yeah. listening to this, now I took a chance. He could have said, ah, stop being weak. I, it could have been like General Patton slapping me, man up. But I will tell you, if you're listening into this, if you're just honest and you just are raw like that and you don't even know why you're afraid or you're hurt and you just look into the eyes of your mom or dad and you just let the hurt show and you let the tears flow because it is the most honest you've ever been in your life, it's the most powerful moment in your life. And I think what happened is our relationship turned a corner because I don't think he really ever backed down from almost anyone. But that's the power of true, raw vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, uh, I have two kids in college and so... A lot of this, you know, really hits home and, and, you know, consequently, I think because of the experience I had as a kid and my own therapy and, and, and work on myself, because I didn't used to be this way when my kids were little, um, I've kind of gone, you know, all the way to the other side and um, hope that you know, I've created the space for my kids to have those kind of conversations, but, but I still know that there's still some um, communication that maybe uh, feels difficult um, for whatever reasons, you know, stories that kids take on. And I'm not just talking about my own, but in general, there's, whether it be parental or societal, peer pressure, whatever it is, sometimes it is really difficult to look a parent in the eye, look anyone in the eye and speak your truth. And so I'm curious, you know, for you at that point in your life, was it that you had kind of gotten to a rock bottom, so to speak? Um, what was it that had you able in that moment to hold that gaze and say those words, I'm afraid. I think it was a rock bottom because the more he said, you're going back, you're going back, you're going back, the more, uh, you know, I was probably inside on the brink of panic, but it was rock bottom. But I'm going to give you, and people who are listening in who are parents, because I speak around the world. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I've beca I become close friends with a fellow named Jason Reed. His 14-year-old son died by suicide three years ago. He left a couple suicide notes. One were his passcodes. And Jason looked in his computer and his son had been trying to kill himself for six months. 
And the other post-it note said, tell my story. So Jason put over $200,000 of his own money into a documentary, which you can see for free if you look up Tell My Story film. And he went up and down the West Coast talking to people uh, about why did my son do this? Uh, A couple of weeks ago, he and I did two 90-minute global YPO Zoom calls. YPOs all around the world. We did two 90-minute ones where he shared what he's learned and what he missed. And I shared some tips for getting through to your child. So I'm going to give you, but but mainly give your audience some coaching tips if you have a teenager or child and you're worried about. Uh, So because these are difficult conversations. And the way you tee it up if you're a parent is we can all say to our teenagers, you know, all of us parents are worried. We have no idea what effect the pandemic is having on uh, kids your age. And we're all a little bit worried. So you tee it up uh, because teenagers hate unsolicited heart-to-heart conversations. Do this when you're in the middle of an activity, like you're driving. You know, don't, don't just bring them to do a face-to-face thing. They will hate it. But while you're driving or doing an activity, you tee it up the way I said, and you can say, can I ask you a few things? And uh, I can't imagine them saying no. They probably won't say yes. They'll say what? (laughs) And what is a yes? Uh, And here are the four prompts. The first one is, at its absolute worst, how awful are you capable of feeling about yourself or your life? You're going to go, what? And you say, at its absolute worst, how awful are you capable of feeling how much pain about your life or yourself? Um, and, and in one of my recent books, I introduced the approach I use with all my suicidal patients called surgical empathy. So you're getting a taste of surgical empathy, which is going deeper. And your child might say, uh, pretty awful. And you say, pretty awful or very awful? Okay, okay, very awful. Second prompt, when you're feeling very awful, how alone are you capable of feeling with it just by yourself? Pretty alone. Pretty alone or all alone? Okay already, all alone. The third prompt is, take me to the last time you felt that. They're going to say, what? Or they're going to say, WTF? And you say, yeah, was it, was it in the middle of the night because we heard you walking around in your room and, or, or some other time? And here's something that happens when you can get another person to describe something so clearly that you see it with your eyes, they refeel it. Yeah, I was walking around. It was in the middle of the night. Yeah, yeah we heard that. What was going on? Well, I couldn't sleep. I tried to sleep. I couldn't sleep, so I was just walking around. Then what happened? Well, you know, I just got so frustrated. I felt like kicking the wall. That that sounds terrible. What happened next? I didn't know what to do. I was looking for some of your expired medications. Did you find any? No, I couldn't find any. What happened next? I didn't know what I was going to do. And then the sun rose. So you get them to talk it out. 
And then the fourth thing, and by this time, you're looking right into their eyes with all the love, care, protection, and concern you have as a mom or dad. And you say, I got a favor to ask you. When you're ever feeling that way or even heading down that road, I want you to do whatever it takes to get my or your mom or your dad's undivided attention. Because our minds are filled with all kinds of things. And there is nothing more important to each of us to find a way to help you feel less alone when you're feeling that awful. Do you understand me? So could you track with that? Oh, yeah, very much so. Um, In fact, I was taking notes just to make sure I I really did. Um, I think that's really important. And I'm also interested in following up on that documentary and uh, certainly, uh, I'm a member of YPO, so there are a lot of resources out there. And, and I think at times it can be a little overwhelming, frankly, especially if you're in a very difficult time trying to just, you know, kind of keep your head above water. But that guidance and, and the other resources that you've referenced, you know, th- those things, um, I'm sure have a lot of value and can be really helpful. And, I appreciate you sharing that. And well, uh, let, me give, let me give another resource because um, yeah. because the YPO talk was private, and mm-hmm. I think it's available to YPO members. But there's a lot of people listening in who aren't members of YPO. But if you look up Teen Mental Health Webinar, Teen Mental Health Webinar, it's a about a 40 minute video, and the first nine minutes is Jason's. Uh, Goldcast talk that got, I think, 9 million views at Goldcast. And he's talking to a group of 12 male founders. And he basically said, this is how I screwed up. And this is how we all screw up. He said, well, you're an entrepreneur. You solve problems. You know, you, you turn everything into a problem and you give advice. But when someone's really suicidal, they're stuck. They can't come to where you are. They'll smile politely or they'll just be angry, but you're not helping them. You have to get to where they're at. And Jason did something really interesting. He said, uh, close your eyes, raise your hand if you ever felt less than, if you ever felt like a failure, if you ever felt bullied, if you ever felt whatever. Everybody raised their hand. He said, open your eyes. And he said, how many of you have shared that with any of your children? None of them. He said, we need to be able to share our own vulnerability because otherwise they're going to look at us as the role model and they're just losers. And so that goes on for nine minutes. And then I think the next 25 minutes is me me giving advice to parents, just like I just gave you. You're worried about your teenager. This is what's going on. Here's how you can reach them. And that's filled with tips. So that's a shorter version of the 90-minute version that we did with YPO. What's Jason's last name for people that want to find the goal cast? Jason Reed, R-E-I-D, mm-hmm. goal cast, right. and you'll find it. And it may have been called the most important conversation you'll ever have with your kid. Great. Wonderful. Okay. So um, thank you. Really, really appreciate you sharing all of that. I do think that you know even. Um, for myself, maybe um, a lot of us have underestimated the uh, impacts of COVID and what's going on 
in general right now, maybe um, beyond COVID, just the kind of magnitude of any number of issues that are bubbling up, you know, at this time and, and what kind of impact that has on all of us, but especially uh, teenagers and uh, that, you know, this is, this is really, you know, this might be the real um, epidemic of our, of our uh, world right now is this, this mental health epidemic and, and suicide prevention and, and, and really, you know, the work that you do. I, I am intrigued with the kind of entrepreneur part and, and what you're doing there, but I'm, I'm more fascinated and, and I actually, um, I do want to give you a chance to expand upon that because I really do believe that it might be, or at least in part, it is the, uh, the, the responsibility of entrepreneurs. Um, and, you know, I'm involved with conscious capitalism, but people that are creating in a way that is beneficial for society and doing that from a healthy, sustainable place, as opposed to kind of the way that, you know, traditionally founders and CEOs and others were required to operate within the business world. I I believe that can be a huge unlock in the path forward, but, but I'm, I'm, let me interrupt you. Sure. Because I'm giving you a message to bring back to your community entrepreneurs, especially male entrepreneurs, and increasingly female entrepreneurs are afraid of emotion. They're afraid of feeling. And one of the reasons, and I have a podcast called My Wake Up Call, where I interview people about their purpose, their calling, and their origin story. And I have a wide range of people from Larry King to Doug Conan to Jordan Peterson uh, I'm releasing three podcasts a week because I have 40 recorded episodes in the queue. And I interviewed a fellow named Chip Connolly. Chip Connolly owned a, sure. a hotel chain, Joie de Vivre. He sold it. He pivoted to Airbnb. But he was very real in our podcast called My Wake Up Call. He said, I reached a point where I had all the money in the world, but five of my friends died by suicide. I was feeling depressed and suicidal. and And I realized I was addicted to achievement. And so we we drilled down in what we talked about. And this is the message to give back to your community. I, I said, there's a possibility, Chip, that you have the syndrome of disavowed yearning. And what that means is when we were in the womb, we were whole. When we are born, we're not whole. We're totally dependent. And we're not just dependent on food and being clothed. We're dependent on an emotional connection with our parents. We didn't need that in the womb. We we were mainlining through that placenta. But if it's not to be had, because our parents just can't connect in their well-meaning, and we pivot to achievement, they like it. Oh, look at what my son, look what my daughter can do. And so, and it and by the way, if you can disavow needing that emotional connection, meaning you say to yourself, I don't need it. I don't need to be close to another human being because I can accomplish anything except closeness. And then what happens is you can run with that for 45, 50 years until you can't anymore. And you say, geez, I've achieved a lot. I'm financially okay, but something's missing. 
And what's missing is the disavowed yearning to have a connection that you didn't pay any attention to because achievement took over. And it's possible in later years to achieve that. Um, uh, It's interesting. uh, I used to do house calls to dying patients, some very powerful ones. And there was one who I can't mention who everybody knew and loved. He was an icon in the entertainment industry. And I remember I saw him one day and I say, you look like crap. Uh, What is it? I don't think it's because you're dying. You've been dying as long as I know you. What's going on? So he liked that I was a straight shooter. And he said to me, "Uh, I don't think I've ever done anything important in my life. I said, what? You got a hospital named after you. You got thousands of fans. What's the deal here? And he looked at me and he said, don't con a con man, especially when he's dying. I've got all the love that money can buy. That's all it's worth. And maybe, just maybe, I outsmarted myself. And I've run out of time. Everything I thought was important isn't. And everything I thought was unimportant is. And I've just plain run out of time. So if you're someone like me and you're doing house calls like this, you have to be an idiot to not learn important lessons about life, Mm -hmm. which I have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So thank you for letting me do that full frontal push there. No, no, no. I'm glad you did. Yeah, I've learned in in being a uh, amateur podcast host, but you know we've recorded almost a hundred episodes now, and I've learned when um, it's time to get out of the way a little bit. And you're sharing some really powerful learning, so I'm very grateful for that. And and I maybe you could just kind of really kind of drill that point home a little bit even more because um, I I. Also, in fact, I had this conversation with my therapist today about the power of learning um, when you're teaching and um, just what you get to see out of humanity, the, the mirror, the reflection, the, the, you know, the learning that's there for you to grab. And I am sure you having a front row seat to all kinds of people that are either sick, dying, um, depressed, you know, suicidal, on and on and on. There's been a tremendous amount of learning, and so I'm hearing you make the point. And I admire Chip, and and I know what he's doing now. I'm also in the real estate business, so I've seen him speak before um, live back when we did that. <laughs> um, but th- this idea of connection and and what's really important, you know, outsmarting ourselves. I, you know, when I hear when I hear that. It feels very unconscious that somebody could outsmart themselves, that, that you almost have to kind of not even realize you're doing it until you're faced with something of magnitude, a rock bottom, and sadly, in this case, maybe death. I also believe that there are some intuitive little kind of sparks or flashes or or sensations at a minimum along the way 
And I can just speak for myself and being real honest with you and our audience that I know I do this and have done this, that we ignore that it's not so unconscious that sometimes we kind of know, but, but, you know, and I call it conditioning and I'm, I'm not trained at all to do this, but, um, you know, that's, that's kind of the language that I've learned and use, but there's probably some better technical way to describe this, but we, 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 for some reason, for some reason, even if we know, even if we have some sense, the choice to follow that and, and, and instead what we end up doing is going with the thing we know or the thing we think we're supposed to do or the thing we think maybe if I just do that more, it'll bring me what I'm looking for. You know, why is it, why is it that it's so hard for human beings to choose connection, love, things that, you know, we all know really probably matter more than anything else. Uh, you know, it, it does that come back to this childhood societal trauma conditioning, you know, talk a little bit about, I guess, you know, to be, you know, real specific, why is it and what is it, you know, why do we do it? And, and what is it we really should be focused on choosing? Well, I think it falls under the uh, umbrella of alpha conditioning, alpha energy, because I'm seeing one of the things that really worries me is I am seeing alpha women who are just amazing. They are just dynamic. But what's happening is some of their children are really having problems because I will tell you, a kindly dad is a distant second to a warm, patient mommy. And alpha energy doesn't have the patience to be warm and patient. And part of what keeps people uh, uh, prisoners of alpha, that wouldn't be a bad book, prisoners of alpha, <laughs> is that we, we live in a psychological silo where competence is hardwired to... Uh, Confidence is hardwired to control. And so we try to pull things into our lane where we feel competent, confident, and in control. That's why when someone's coming at us and they're emotional, they're pulling us out of that silo of competence, confidence, and control. And I'll give you a hack. This is so magical. Uh, if you're an alpha and you get into... Uh, you get into arguments with someone who's not an alpha. It's called the FUD-CRUD intervention. And FUD-CRUD, you'll remember. That's why we came up with it. So imagine someone's venting at you, complaining, or they're giving you the silent treatment. But imagine if they're venting, you're so clueless. Stop giving me advice. I don't want such and such. You know, it's, it's not an unusual thing to hear as an entrepreneur from a personal relationship. So instead of saying to them, calm down, you're getting too emotional, which is only going to make it worse. Here's the FUD crud tactic. It is magical. It's, it's, a, it's similar to the Muhammad Ali rope-a-dope that he did with uh, George uh, Foreman in, uh, in Zaire. You let them hit you with their best shot. You pause for a couple seconds. You look them in the eye 
and you say, and it can't be condescending, you say, you sound frustrated and I think you're holding back. What? You sound frustrated and I think you're holding back because I think you're upset and disappointed too. That's the fun. What? Yeah, you sound frustrated, but I'm betting you're also upset and disappointed. Can you fill me in on all those things and maybe we can handle this in a better way? And what you want to do using surgical empathy uh, is when they tell you what they're frustrated about, you go deeper. Say more about that. Talk to me at my worst. Ah, oh, I did that. Ooh. And, and then when you finish up with the frustration and, and what upsets you about that is, and then whatever they say, open them up even more. And what you're going to notice is they're going to calm down. And then when you get to, I'll bet you're disappointed too. Disappointed in me, disappointed that we're doing this again. Maybe disappointed in yourself. What's that about? But if you can patiently go through the layers of the onion, by the time you're talking about what they're disappointed about, it's a very calm conversation. Uh, also, if you can be compassionate, feeling, saying to yourself, my intention is never to cause the kind of pain that they're talking about, but I've done it. And when they're talking about what they're disappointed about, it's very calm and it enables you to look them in the eye and say, I did all that. I do all that. You deserve better. I'm sorry. I'm going to fix this. And you will mean it. But can you follow the tracking that I'm giving you as you go from one layer to the next to the next? Yes. Yes, I can. Um, my late therapist, who uh, was kind of a local celebrity <laughs> to the CEO, YPO, you know, community, he used to say, call it going down the elevator. Mm-hmm. You know, that you, you kind of kind of just stay in there and just kind of keep, I, you know, I, I hear you, you're frustrated, you know, and just kind of hang in there with them. And, and, and then, you know, I love the part of kind of owning it. You know, you, you've said this, you know, a number of ways that it's really important for uh, our children. I also think it's really important as leaders, as CEOs, founders, um, or managers, anyone in a role um, model position of any kind to really kind of debunk the story that we're better than we are, um, that we're, we're, again, this is, you know, why I enjoy this podcast and I hope why it uh, matters to other people. And it sounds like you do something, you know, similar with yours we need to hear the stories, you know, that a guy like you who has had so much success, who's achieved so much, um, why, why you got on that path to begin with, the fact that you were also at one point in your life depressed enough to drop out of college twice. I mean, again, I, I don't think people really look at college dropouts as people like you. And yet, there are many people like you. Um, there are many people who have dropped out of college who have gone on to do incredible things. I mean, that's a whole subject by itself, whether or not college 
is something that we should be putting on our children in the same way that we used to put on them doctors and lawyers. I mean, where where is the line, you know, that we should be, because uh, I, I believe my parents, you know, your parents, your dad, you know, others, the intentions are generally good, but, you know, we, we put stuff on our kids without giving them the full story and the full picture. And I think that's why, you know, your stories that you're sharing today are so important. Uh, I, I want to, you just triggered something that uh, some more unsolicited advice, but uh, I'm on a mission here. I'm Great. Gonna, I'll, I'll take I'm, it. I'm loving it. Something that I notice with a lot of entrepreneurs in both their personal and their leadership style is they have really good intentions, but their intentions don't match their behavior. So if their intention is always, I want to bring out the best in people, I want them to be the most successful possible, but their way of doing it is counterproductive. They think it's the other person's fault because they know that my intentions are only good. But the point is, there's a saying, we have some control, not a lot, uh, over what and how we say something. We have zero control over how it's heard. And you need to take that into consideration. You know, it's interesting. I have an accelerator course that I've uh, presented uh, four times now to cohorts of 15 founders about how to pitch to investors. And the whole idea, and I have this company called Michelangelo Mindset. Mm -hmm. And I said, the whole idea is that when you're with an investor, they want to give you their money. They don't want to sit on their money. But you have to clear away everything that gets in the way of it. And one of the things that gets in the way of it is being too passionate about your company when they're listening for the details of whether it can be successful and whether it can, uh, you know, uh, whether there's going to be a return and profitability. And that's one of the problems for a lot of founders. They are so in love with their IP. They can't believe other people won't be. I, I, I consult to a number of tech companies and they say, we have, uh, we have a tech product that works 100% of the time, we can't get anyone to try it. We can't even give them a free 30 days and have anyone try it. We can't pay them to try it. And I said, that's because you're too convincing and you're not compelling. Compelling opens people's minds. And you got to do that first before you then try to convince them. But if you try to convince people too early, you chase them away. Mm -hmm. Very good. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to share? Just being cognizant of time um, about uh, you know that um, framework um, or your work or anything in general. I really feel um, very honored to kind of hear the advice and and your personal story today. I just want to make sure that we have a chance to talk about. Um, anything else that's really, you know, alive for you, you know, as we start to wrap up? Well, I just put my QR code up there. My uh, tech advisor gave me <laughs> that thing. That'll take you to my LinkedIn 
profile. And that's pretty much up to date. Uh, I do have a website called Michelangelo Mindset. It was nominated for Breakthrough Ideas by Thinkers50. I have a personal website, markgoulston.com. I have a podcast that's just, it's just, it's it's, it's running me over. Uh, (laughs) It's called My Wake Up Call. And and so people can check any of those out. I also have, uh, if I haven't, if I haven't bored too many of you, and some of you found my way of my way of communicating actually tolerable or maybe interesting, I have an audio course at Himalaya Learning. So if you go to Himalaya.com forward slash defeat, uh, the course is called Defeating Self-Defeat. And I believe if you use the word defeat uh, in the promo, you can listen to it for free for a certain amount of time. And it's 13 uh, chapters. Uh, I'll give you a teaser and see what you think of this. One of the chapters is on procrastination. And my belief is we procrastinate not because we're lazy, but because we're lonely. Because if you go back to college, when did you clean up the fraternity or the dormitory that was a pigsty? You all did it together. Why does AA work? Because doing it with another person takes away just feeling alone, lonely, and not wanting to do something. Because what leads to procrastination is often we are pushed to do things when we're children and we hate it. And we say to ourselves, when I get older, no one's going to make me do this. Well, guess what? There's a lot of things you need to do that will make you better. But the pain of being alone in that as a child, you don't want to re-experience as an adult until you procrastinate. And here's the last bit of advice. You want your kids to succeed. You want them to overcome a self-defeating behavior. Uh, What you say to them, because our kids worry about us. They want us to be healthy. They want us to eat regularly. They want us to exercise. And if you say to your kids, "I, I need your help. What? There's something I'm wanting to do, but I'm not motivated to do it. I want to eat better. I want to exercise or whatever it is, or I want to, you know, talk nicer to your mom or your dad instead of arguing. And I'd be motivated to do it if we could do a trade. And the trade is, and then you pick something that they need to get better at that will help their life. Mm. I love it. That's really great. Mark, thank you. This has really been wonderful. I could do this for days with you, but there's a lot of content out there that I um, know you've shared with our group to be able to get more of your wisdom. But I really appreciate you taking the time to be with me today and share what you've had. It's, uh, I think, like I said before, this is really uh, an important subject. Um, maybe you know, as much as ever, certainly it's, it's really heightened at the time. And um, I just really appreciate what you're doing and I, uh, you know, I'm inspired by your story that, you know, you kind of um, really did find a way when I hear all that you're up to with the podcast and the, and the, and the audio um, classes and the speaking and, 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 you know, all the many things that you're doing, that feels very creative to me. And it does feel like you have found a way to honor that child who wanted to be creative 
and also found a way to use your life to serve other people. And uh, that to me, I think is really the goal. When, when, you, when you think about you know, the Hollywood mogul on his deathbed, um, I think if you've used your life, the learnings that you've had in your own life to serve your family, yourself, and, and other people, and in your case, many, many other people, I think that's kind of what you're looking for in those moments. Um, that isn't about, um, you know, out, out, uh, out, uh, smarting yourself. I think that's about, you know, really trying to live with integrity and and in alignment with our, you know, with our purpose. So just thank you for that. And that's, that's, I'll let you kind of put the, put the final words on this. So the final word, because, and thank you for giving me a long leash and thank you to your listeners and viewers for tolerating that I sometimes uh, get a little tangential. But something I wanted to share is how I pivoted to being creative. So look, I was a math science major, went to med school. Took me six years to get through. The day that I graduated, I took out a crappy little notebook, put down the date, it was in 1976. And the first entry was, I can't believe I made it through. They have graduated a crazy person. I'm on volume 253, 45,000 pages, 1,200 articles, nine books, and I'm a writer. And I think it's made me, even though I'm tangential, I think it's made me reasonably articulate. And here's how journals work. A lot of times we come up with thoughts, but the world will say to us, what are you thinking about that? What are you wasting your time? And they can talk us out of something. And in my mind, if I thought something, I felt something, it was worth putting down. And then the dots connected and turned into an article or a book. And so something that, uh, here's my last bit of wisdom, inspirational wisdom to entrepreneurs that you all know all too well. When someone says no to you, it doesn't mean you're wrong or you shouldn't do something. It just means they won't help you. Mm, that's great. I love it. That's really great. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, that's, it's really important for people to hear that because I do think that oftentimes, no, um, or you know, that's a bad idea is, is, is taken as fact. And um, that can stop somebody dead in their tracks. And, um, you know, as, as we all know, the president of the United States gets elected with a, you know, 51% and it's a landslide. So, um, you know, we don't need everybody to get it. Um, so uh, not to ignore good advice, but, um, you know, that doesn't mean it's fact. So, yeah, but Mark, plus, yeah. plus Jack, uh, I'll just add this. Yeah. Uh, Jack Cochran, uh, he was the former CEO of the Kaiser Permanente Foundation. And I spoke with him and he said, if you're an entrepreneur, I said, what's the most important thing? Is he said, you have to forgive your mistakes because if you beat up on yourself every time you make a mistake, he said, if you're an entrepreneur, you learn from mistakes. You make much more mistakes than you make right decisions and you learn from them. But if you are merciless and you beat up on yourself every time you make a mistake, 
you're going to send a message to yourself to not take any risks and you'll never make it. And I thought that was great advice. The great advice, not just for entrepreneurs, great advice for, for life and for just being a, a parent, a human being, you know, that, um, yeah, we, we can't beat up on ourselves for mistakes. It's part of life. Wonderful. Mark, thanks again. I really, really appreciate the conversation and uh, the opportunity to have you on the podcast and the work that you're doing. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, leave us a review and follow me on Instagram at Brett Kaufman on Twitter at bkaufman125 and subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for The Gravity Podcast with Brett Kaufman. And please send me a DM with any guests or topics that you'd like to hear on future episodes.